This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 48. Today I'm back with our most tuned in guest ever, uh, Logan Blask, my sister-in-law, was our guest on raising an emotionally intelligent human. She is raising two of them, actually, the twins, who then were featured in the episode right after that. So you can hear what that looks like in five-year-olds who are now six. Uh, Can we freeze time, please? So... Back by popular demand is Logue, and she and I dove into empathy and how to build empathy because empathy is a part of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is broken up into three categories. It's self-awareness, empathy, and social skills. So how do we build that? How do we build empathy in our tiny humans? And uh, we have some more episodes coming that dive into empathy as well, kind of diving up like empathy versus sympathy and things like that. But for this one, I wanted to hear right from Logue, what did you do to raise these empathetic humans? Because they are delightfully empathetic and you'll hear it in anecdotes and things uh, in our episode as we discuss this. She leaves us with so many tangible things. We talk about sharing and just how young she started teaching them empathy. And guys, I have learned so much from being a part of her village, from watching her with these tiny humans. And I, it, it really fills me up to be able to serve you with her experience as well. And I hope you enjoy this one. We are going to have a little chat about empathy, both in our Facebook group. If you're not a part of it yet, come on over. It's delightful. We People essentially get access to this team of experts in the field of early childhood, and you can just pop your question in and we tag team it. 
The group is Seed and Sew, S-E-W, colon, Voices of Your Village. And also we'll have a discussion over on Instagram at seed.and.sew, S-E-W. So come chat with us about this. I want to hear your feedback and your questions and all that jazz. And like I said, we're going to have more episodes on specifically empathy coming up. So... I would love to hear from you on stuff that you want to hear more about or learn more about that maybe we don't go as in-depth in in this episode. So let me hear it. I absolutely love seeing where you're tuning in from. So if you could screenshot this and share it on Facebook or share it on Instagram and tag me. I actually stumbled across one the other day that somebody had shared and I was never tagged, so I didn't even know. Uh, so please tag me in it. It's seed.and.so, S-E-W, on Instagram. Uh, if it's in your stories or in a post or whatever, I love, love, love seeing where you're tuning in from and being able to connect with you. I I have wound up in conversations in my messages with folks who have shared that they're tuning in and then we get to chat in our DMs. And I absolutely love it. It fills my heart. Uh, It can get kind of lonely behind this screen and talking into a microphone by myself all the time. So let me see where you're coming from. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome to Voices of Your Village. I am back with one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. I get to hang out with my sister-in-law, Logan, who you might remember from episode 26 on raising emotionally intelligent humans. And then her tiny humans, uh, twins Emerson and Spencer, were on the following episode. That is our; Those two are our most downloaded episodes ever, which makes sense because they are some of the best humans on this planet. But today, Logan came back with me on request to dive into empathy. Hey, Logs. Hi. I didn't realize that it's the most downloaded one. That's so funny and cute and exciting. <laughs> yeah, it is. Both of yours, both you and the twins. Oh, well, thanks for having me back. I appreciate you asking. Yeah, for sure. You were, you were back by popular demand. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, that's sweet. (laughs) (laughs) So I have been doing these Tiny Humans Big Emotions series this this fall and into the winter. And I have been getting so many questions that really have come back to the topic of empathy. And after diving into a conversation with you kind of about this stuff, I was like, oh, I wish we were recording this whole conversation. So I'm glad we get to sit down and, and do that now. I reached out to my village and got some questions from them. And also through these tiny humans, big emotions groups have have pulled together some questions for you. So I'd love to just hang out and chat about it. Great. Yeah, no, I'm excited to hear the questions and I mean, I'll try to answer them the best that I can. And 
I mean, I can only speak probably up to like six years old because that's how old the twins are. I mean, I do have experience with special ed and teaching, you know, for years before I had them. But I, I guess I'm definitely more mindful of this, you know, now that I'm shaping humans every, you know, every single day for years. And um, yeah, no, I'm excited to hear what people have to say and what questions they have. Awesome. Well, thank you. Can you, for anyone who has not yet tuned in to episode 26 or needs a little refresher, can you give us a little refresher on who you are and what your family looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am Logan Blask. Um, Alyssa is my sister-in-law and I am so happy that I get to be a Blask and be a part of um, this family. And I had a wonderful family, you know, still in my life growing up, the whole Hedziki side and my sisters and my parents. But the fact that I get to have this whole other side of the family is just bonus for me and for my kids. Um, And when I say kids, I have six-year-old twins, Emerson and Spencer. And they, I mean, for anyone who knows me, just are like my world. I love them. And not to say I don't have balance and friends and my husband and stuff, but they just amaze me and I love them and I love being home with them. I was a teacher for close to 10 years before I had them. And then once they were born, I just never wanted to be away. I feel so fulfilled and happy and grateful that I get to just focus and devote all my time to our family unit. And um, yeah, and that, you know, Brian is a huge part of that. He works from home. So that's amazing. We get to spend a ton of time with him. And when I talk today about, you know, things, you know, all things empathy, he is a huge part of it. I send him links to articles to read. And I'm like, this is a really important thing for our family and for our our kids now and for their future. So he is just as much on board with it as I am. I wouldn't say he's going and, you know, researching it at night, maybe like I am, (laughs) but he's open to when I send him links, just kind of like he's doing his bigger pockets and, you know, buying rental properties like that's his his avenue and we stay in our lanes but we also cross over and help each other and support each other so I when I say I do this it's mostly we do this and he is very um intentional with his parenting as well so yeah that's our family unit and we I mean a little bit we live in Syracuse we snowbird for the winter my kids this is our first year of a technically like officially homeschooling we've had a non-traditional schooling route which has been awesome for our family we are so open-minded I mean I love the school system my kids I was a teacher and my kids will be in a public school system at some point but for this point in time we get to go away and it's family time and it's the very best thing in the world to you know to spend time with them so that's where we're at that's us it's awesome They are two of my favorite people to hang out with in the whole wide world. And they are two remarkably empathetic humans. And they're two very, very different humans. And that's one of the things that I love about sitting down and chatting with you is that you have perspective on raising two emotionally intelligent humans who come at life very differently. Uh, And yeah, absolutely. Good perspective, I think. So I'm going to dive into some questions. Great. One of the first and probably biggest questions I got was about sibling mm-hmm. rivalry. The question okay. was, or, or this question was kind of phrased in, in different versions, but was essentially like, do I expect them not to fight? Like, should that be my expectation? Don't all siblings fight? 
or should there be a different expectation? A lot of folks were like, well, I was raised with siblings and this is how we carried on and uh, this is how I thought it was supposed to be. So I'd love to just hear your experience with the twins there. And you know what? That's such a great question. And I feel like it hits home to so many people because I mean, one of my best friends has an only child, like she just has chose to have one kid, but a lot of families that we are around have multiple children. And this is not something that is very specific or happens, you know, once or twice or it's a phase, like this is life all day, every day for a lot of families. So it's something that is really important to to focus on. And I guess to answer the question, I would start off by saying my kids are definitely allowed to disagree. Like they are allowed to have their own opinions, their own um, thoughts, the way they go about and attack problems and such. They do not have to get along, kumbaya, agree with each other all the time, but they are not allowed to fight. One, they are not allowed to physically touch each other, you know, whether it's a little slap or when they were babies, like pulling hair, those were huge, hard nose right from the get-go. And it, 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 it just, it was me being involved with their play when they were little. And if one of them pulled each other's hair, you know, I would say, ouch, that really hurts Emerson. Do you see her? She's crying. We don't touch people like that. And our big thing is like, we can do hugs, handshakes, and high fives. So if you want to touch someone, you can ask them, but you, we do hugs, handshakes, and high fives. Of course, we cuddle and kiss, but that's kind of just like our phrase is we don't hit, we don't slap, we don't take toys. That They weren't allowed to like physically fight. So when they do have like a disagreement or an argument, they have to use their words and their feelings. And that did not just happen. Like they didn't come out of the room like, Spencer, I don't like it when you take my toy when I was playing with it. Like that was modeled and taught and I gave them the words before they were able to do that on their own. But that's how they have their disagreements. One of the things that is important is Brian and I also don't fight and yell at each other. So they don't ever see that as a model. Like they don't know that that's how some people do it. If they see us talking through an issue and having a disagreement or having a difference of opinion in a respectful, kind, calm way, then that's going to transition to how they have a conflict. Yes, there are conflicts in our house, but they know how to handle it and what's appropriate. So that's through modeling with Brian and I, that's through giving them words before they had it. That's for having, you know, we, I did do timeouts when, when they were little and they, you know, did whine at each other and whining was a big thing for me. And they kept whining and, and I asked them to sit, you know, talk nicely to your twin or, you know, when they were disagreeing, I would remove them from the situation and we would talk about it, but they, there was kind of some repercussion. Like you're not going to just get to, you know, argue with your sister. It's not how it's going to work. So to answer the question, yes, expect some conflict. But if you're there and you're present and you're mindful and you are teaching them how to have conflict and in in how it can be a positive thing and how it, the outcome can happen through talking, then I think it doesn't turn into a fight. It just turns into like a problem and then a resolution. Yeah, I think that's huge. There are a couple of things that you mentioned there that I want to kind of dive a little deeper on. I think one yeah. is that what we're trying to teach them here is conflict resolution, right? We're all going to go through life. Yeah. And 
conflict all the time. And that's okay. Conflict doesn't have to be something we're afraid of if we know how to have it. And absolutely. Yeah. In in conflict, that's, that's what we talk about. It's going to happen. You're going to have disagreements and I want them to have different viewpoints. I want them to stand up for themselves, but there's an appropriate way to do it. I don't think you, and they know that we don't do it through yelling. That doesn't get us anywhere. I, I mean, since they were born, I've used the phrase that doesn't get you anywhere. That doesn't get you what you want. You know, just like fighting does not get you the toy that you wanted to begin with. Um, it, that's, that's not the way that we do it. We resolve conflict by saying, you know, Spencer, I'm feeling really sad that um, you asked Liam to play, but you didn't ask me to join in. Those words and, you know, attaching a feeling to it. Well, Spencer's going to feel sorry for her, you know, and want to invite her next time or include her then if she, if she comes at it in a calm, peaceful way and he'll feel bad for her. Not if she's screaming at him, you left me out. You know, I don't, I don't even know what they would do. Like that, they don't yell at each other like that, but it's not, I know I don't like to be yelled at. I'm not going to come from a calm place if someone's yelling at me, but I definitely can see their perspective if they tell me how they're feeling and come at it from that angle. Yeah, I think that's huge. And, you know, we won't dive as much into this because we did in the emotional intelligence one, but it it really starts with being able to identify your feelings. If you're going to have conflict communication, Uh, you have to know how you're feeling and what to do with them before you can communicate about it. But one thing that you noted there was timeouts. And I think timeouts get a bad rap, but I like to rephrase them and think of them a little differently in terms of taking space. Like sometimes we need space to feel calm and to cool down. I take space. I'll be like, I'm going to go to the bathroom for a minute. Sometimes I don't have to pee. I just need space. And so when I think of timeouts, I think of them in that way. And I think that if we take space or even encourage a child to take space, and then when they're calm, we talk about it. It's different than if we just say, go sit on the stairs for five minutes because you did this thing. I think if we then, it has to be coupled, I think, with the feelings communication. That it's not just sit on the stairs because maybe then you don't learn the tools for how to do it differently next time. Like Then we're also going to talk about it. And that's a really good point. If I had to do it again, I would use the phrase taking space instead of a timeout. Our timeout was definitely removing them from this situation, but so much more of it was talking through that conflict in isolation and also trying to, for them to be able to generalize how to resolve conflict in the future. That might mirror what just happened, or it might be a different type of conflict, but ways to solve it in a better way. I like to not just zoom in on that one problem in isolation, but to like kind of zoom out a little bit and think about that something like this might happen again. How could we resolve it in a different way without raising our voice yeah without like carrying it in the language so much of time out was yeah there was a lot of conversations and there was always a feeling attached to it that feeling is not going to last very long you know it's like a cloud but how can we move past that and right now we took some space what else do you need to do do you need a cuddle and I'm not against you know my kids know that even when we are having a little bit of a conflict, they know that I love them no matter what, that we're going to make mistakes and we're learning from them. I want them to feel safe even when things are not going well. So I'm 
Spencer, especially when he was little, that was reassuring for him and helpful to move past the feeling was to get that physical touch. So even if he was, you know, taking space for a minute or two, I would still give him a hug afterward to hold him to help him get back to a calm place. Um, awesome. It's nice for so them. That's to kind know. of how we used. You're not mad at them. <laughs> Yeah, right. And I say it all the time. I say it every night before bed, like, I will always love you. You know, you can come to me, you can be honest. We, you know, I will love you no matter what. And I want them to have that feeling in life. Like I had that feeling with my parents. Like I want them to know they can turn to me when they're proud. They can turn to me when they're lonely. They can turn to me when they made a mistake and they need to fix something. Like I tell them all the time, every single night, actually, you know, I'll be here no matter what in different ways. If you are really nervous about soccer, I'll, I'll be there. If you're feeling really excited about this weekend coming up, I'm going to be there. I'm, I'm there through it all, thick and thin. So. That's so sweet. Actually, yesterday in Tiny Humans Big Emotions, I said that I use the word disappointed sometimes, and not just in talking about how I'm feeling or how they might be feeling, but I'll use it in the phrase, I am disappointed in that behavior because I know that you're a kind human. I know that's not how you want to behave. How can I help you feel calm so we can make a different choice? And they were the whole group of parents in this tiny humans, big emotions group was like shocked that I used the word disappointed. But I think it's important to point out to kids that I'm not disappointed in you as a human. I love you as a human. Mm -hmm. I'm disappointed in that behavior because I know you can, you have other tools in your toolbox. Let's tap into that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's great. Uh, I think one thing that's worth noting is that for us as adults, a lot of times this language feels uncomfortable. And yeah. it can almost like feel condescending sometimes, but it's so mm -hmm. imperative. That's so true. And I think if anyone's starting out on this, um, you know, wanting to just be more mindful of empathy whether your kid is one or four or seven, if you haven't built it into your daily vocabulary and the way that you interact with them, it may start to feel a little bit foreign or maybe a little bit, I don't know, very teacher-like or, but just do it and try it. I promise you, like it is so helpful. They respond to it. My sister, um, Abby was like, when I, when the kids were little, like they were I mean, I think in the in in their ones, they were not two yet. And I was talking to them about feelings and she like she would sometimes laugh at me. And and I was but I was like rightfully so, that's fine. But because she was like, I went to school and she's like, I'm a high school teacher <laughs> and this is not you know, she you know, she it and I may be calling a lot of, you know, her a lot when I need advice on older adolescents and such in the tween years. But I didn't necessarily go to school to talk to toddlers either, but I just realized that over time that that was going to be really important. And I wanted to start as I wish to go on. If I want them to talk about feelings at age three and at age six, I better start to model it at age one and identify their feelings for them first before they can. And it, it may seem a little foreign if you, know, has, if you haven't done that in your house yet, but give it some time and it'll start to just feel a lot more natural and, and just build it into your everyday life and conversation. Yeah. I love that. Um, all right. So we're going to dive into another question. Another big question that I got was about sharing 
and Mm -hmm. whether or not we make kids share. And I think that this is one that a lot of people have different opinions on. And I actually don't know where you stand on this one. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, um, I think I probably had a different viewpoint going into parenting about sharing as I do now at age, when my twins are age six. And by that, I mean, when I was thinking, you know, when I was pregnant and when they were big baby babies, I would come from more of the mindset of like, you need to take turns. If you have a toy that you like, but someone else wants it, you need to give that to them and, and share and, and take turns. Now, after living through it a little bit, I, of course, use the word share and and take turns, but I come from more of a space of like, if someone's playing with something and they're having a really good time with it, or they are on a swing and they're using it and it's fun for them, you don't have to get off just because someone's waiting right then. Like you don't have to appease them immediately. Um, We use the term I'll be next a lot. We had a slide in our house, like a little kid slide, and I would bring it in for our long Syracuse winters in the bonus room and they both would want to climb up it together so I would you know gently bring one behind the other and say I'll be next you're going to get to go you just don't get to go at the same time that verbiage of I'll be next is still a term that they will use and they used for a long time I just think can I have it when you're done is also a helpful thing to say I don't think giving something up when you're in the middle of enjoying it is really realistic and as an adult we are mindful and I want my kids to be mindful of someone's in line. I know I probably have to get off sooner than I want to, but it's not right now. We yeah, used to have that. play dates at our house. Spencer had like his favorite, favorite trucks and he was obsessed with trucks for a while. And he just was beside himself if other kids were playing with his trucks. And I was like, and I, I remember the play date specifically and afterwards I was like, "Mm, I need to go back to the drawing board because he was grumpy and not sharing and this is not working. What are we going to do to fix it? So the next play date, I said, Spencer, I want you to pick two of your favorite trucks that you love and we're going to put them in your closet. But the other kids that come over get to play with these other 15 trucks. So we're not being greedy and we're not saying, you know, they can't play with our trucks. But the two that are most special to you, I understand not wanting other kids to touch them. We're going to put them away. But that means anything that's out that is it's fair game for everyone. It couldn't have gone better. Like play date number one, disaster. Play date number two, it just went smoothly. Kind of the same thing as when they like, they, they love to carry things and hoard things. And they were little, Emerson would have a purse and she'd want to bring it to library. And I was like, well, if you bring that to library, there might be some other kids around that might want to see your purse or see those dolls in your purse. It's your choice. You can share them or you can keep this in the car and have it when you come back. And they would make that decision. So sharing is one of those things. Also, we just talk a lot. Um, Emerson will get a birthday present and that is really special and fun and new for her. And Spencer, of course, wants to see it. So she'll say, you know, no, Spencer, this is mine. And and so we kind of have a conversation. What I like to, I like to be mindful and I like to be present and kind of know what's going on in the situation instead of always reacting after the fact. That doesn't mean I'm a helicopter parent and involved. And of course, there's times where I'm like having to get the scoop of what happened afterwards. But if I 
see something unfolding, I will stop my phone call or put down, you know, dishes or whatever. And, and we work through this now that, you know what, Spencer, think about how you would feel if you just opened this Lego kit. Do you want Emerson to, to set up this Lego kit before you? So think about how she's feeling. I mean, I wish I had a dollar for every time I said that. <laughs> um, it's like the whole foundation of empathy. Mm-hmm. And, and then I'll also talk to Emerson about it. Like he sees a really cool toy that you just opened. Could we say something like, hey, Spencer, how about tomorrow when I'm done playing with it? Or later on tonight after I, you know, after dinner, you can play with this. But right now I just opened it. It's talking. It's giving them words if they need it or giving them the space to have them think. I might say, Emerson, I want you to think about how you're making Spencer feel right now and let them sit on it for a little while. Sharing looks differently at age two than it does at age six, you know, at age 12. Like, so now I can kind of let them sit and think a little bit more and they have you know, strategies and ways to, to come up with solutions sometimes better than I do if I let them think about it. Yeah. That's kind of my take on sharing. What's, what is your take on sharing? I mean, you've, you've been in different age groups and what's your look, you know, outlook. I fall into pretty much the same camp where it's very rarely, is it something I'm going to like make kids do? Although there are some things like if we are at a playground and there's only one of this toy, then, and there's a group of kids who all want to play with it and it's like a hot commodity, then I would maybe set a timer and say, I see that you're having so much fun and we're going to come back to this mm-hmm. playground and play with it again. You'll have another turn, but there are other kids who want to have a turn today too. And that's more for me, especially through like toddlerhood, I would say where they can't yeah. understand the concept of time as much um, as they sure. can older. And so I would, in those cases, like probably set some sort of visual timer. And I, I love something visual. Like we had those sand timers that were colored. And so it would be like the red sand. They knew like essentially how long and they could see it. They could turn over and look and see how much time they had left. And then most of the time my kiddos would actually go and say like once it got done I would just be like oh I see the sand timer's done I think Sophia's next then they would just go and bring it to Sophia like it became a habit for them but if they are playing with say magnetiles or something that are just like in our classroom then we would let them play like they're building they're being creative and they have a vision for what they're going to make if somebody else needs another square and there isn't one, I'm not going to make that kiddo give it up from their building. So in yeah. that case, yeah, I would, we used that same phrase a lot that I'll be next. And I think it also then I found myself having to turn to the child who was waiting and validate their emotion of it's really hard to wait. Sometimes it's disappointing when you don't get to do what you want to yeah. do. Like there's going to be an emotion that they have to process through that. And that also, I think, has to be the expectation that a lot of the times, especially when you're just starting this, it's not going to be just smooth and kids are going to say, oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I'm fine. You're absolutely right. Coach them through emotions after. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. 
The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online, you can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts, starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Yes. Oh my gosh. Coaching them through the emotion while they're feeling it. And yeah, in, in saying, I hear you. I can, I don't, I don't really like to wait either. Mm-hmm. I use stories all the time. Like, I hope my kids never listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, I hope I do, but I mean, sometimes I'll just make up stories on the spot. Like, oh, I remember one time when I was in kindergarten and I loved climbing the ropes in my mom's gym class. There was one time the, in, in gym class, I only got to climb at one time. And I felt so sad. I felt like crying because it was my favorite thing to do. But then I realized, you know, I can probably do this after, after school when I come back to my mom's class and, and, and play in the gym with her. And like, I just little examples like that, like I, it takes them out of it. And they relate so much more when they hear a story about you, like, oh, you're human. You have feelings. You've been through the same thing. You feel sad too. And like, I'm, I'm okay afterwards. Like mm-hmm. I just tell stories. Most of them are real, but some of them are make believe and it just takes them out of it and it makes them look at it in a different way. Yeah. I've seen you do it. It's awesome. In fact, over the summer when Em was riding her bike and she fell, one of the first things she said, like almost mid tears was, have you ever fallen off your bike? <laughs> because she wants to yeah. hear that story of like, how did you work through this so that I can tap into some of those things? She so is so intuitive about things that have happened to me. And she remembers stories about my life that I don't even remember. I told her <laughs> this works for her so much. I just, she will ask me like, I mean, I don't know, a couple times a week, like, tell me a story where of your real life where you had a problem. 
it, it goes back to like when they were little, when we would put on their boots and like do something that they had to do a lot and zip up their coats and I would tell stories and they just loved it. And now her big thing is she wants it to be about my life and she wants a problem though, for whatever reason. It can't just be like a memory. She <laughs> wants to have a problem and a solution, but she'll ask me to tell it. But I mean, I, I use it in so many different situations, a ton in sports hmm. because we're getting to the age which I didn't really predict this at age four, but I've come around since probably spring. Um, the whole idea of empathy and thinking of like other people's feelings when they're on our team and when they're not on our team and the whole competition aspect of life, but still being able to be kind humans, but want to beat someone else in a game. My son is six and you know, Spencer, I mean, we call him sports Spencer, like jokingly, like he will eat, breathe, talk, play sports all day. If you let him, he's super competitive, but he's also like the nicest kid. So, but we've had to work a lot on empathy in the competition. <laughs> I feel like this is a totally different segue of where I'm going because no, I, I, was just, I was talking about, sto- I was talking about storytelling, but I've, I tell stories all the time because sports were a huge part of you know, mine and Brian's life. So I do have a lot of stories to pull from and I try to make him see different perspectives and, and do that by telling stories about my own life and me playing sports. For example, this past Saturday, it was our last soccer game of the season. These kids, just a great team, great kids. They're so coachable. And we, we're beating a team like 10, nothing. And this was after like substituting kids, like moving our strong scores, you know, back on defense. And, and I just said to them in a huddle, I said, right now, I want you to think as a team, how the other team is feeling. I remember when I was playing soccer and there was a one game where we didn't score a single goal and they ended up beating us. And I said, I think it was like 15 to zero. And I was like, and I was so sad because it was, you know, disappointing. We didn't get to score any goals. I said, right now, when we go out there, yes, we want to play our best, but we also, the most important thing right now is not to score goals. Maybe let's play really good defense and stay back, or let's work on our passing. Let's see if we can get three passes in a row and consider that like a win or a point in your head if you need to, you know, keep score. But I also try to like have them be aware of how the other team is feeling if we're winning 10 nothing. I mean, that I didn't expect during the rest of the season. It's not something that I bring up all the time. You know, don't play your hardest. Or, but it was just one of those things. I wanted them to be aware. And also I said, after the game, what do you think we should do? Do you think we should A, scream and yell and say, we scored 12 goals. We beat them 12 zip. Or B, high five each other. Good game. Wow. You guys played really well. Like, what do you think? And they, of course, all said B. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Which by the way, I do a ton of A and Bs. Like I give them different options and to lead them in the right direction. But I, you know, A was like, I don't want you to be braggy. I don't want you to rub it in their face that they didn't score any goals, but I do want you to be excited. Here's an appropriate way we can be excited. So there's like this whole empathy part of competition that is coming into play and I'm navigating our way through it. Um, 
but I think Spencer has a good foundation for empathy and he's like a really thoughtful kid and that helps to bring the competition down a notch. He's very competitive, but he's also mindful of other people's feelings. Totally. Well, and I think in that, when you were talking about doing the A or B and even just being in the huddle, what you're doing there is pre-teaching, which is something that I think is huge for, for developing empathy because we're going to go to playgrounds, go to library time, go to birthday parties, do all these things that are social gatherings. And it can be so helpful if we as adults in the car, on the way there, or when you're walking over, or as you're getting ready to go out the door, can do these what-if scenarios and prepare kids for what might happen or what might come up and start getting them to think about how they might respond in a way that is empathetic. I could not agree more. I love that so much. If there was like like one big, huge takeaway. I mean, there will be a couple as far as empathy goes, but if, if you, if there was something that you could just take with you now from this podcast at any age, because pre-teaching or front-loading or whatever you want to call it, pre-teaching can happen at any age and it's going to look differently, but it's so important at every single stage in so many different ways. And you can do it I mean, in the car on the way to library class, on our way to preschool, you know, walking up the steps to school, when before a family gathering, before people enter the house, you can pre-teach them so many different things. And it's just, I can't even explain how important it is. We do it all the time. Today we did it. We are having a um, Halloween boo with a neighborhood crew. <laughs> and there are 12 neighborhood kids coming over and we are bobbing for apples and we're decorating cookies and we're you know, doing Halloween games and things like that. So I, today, when the kids were eating breakfast, I did a little like what if scenario. And we do a lot of what ifs. So some of mine today, especially because the twins are in the youngest age, so there will be six-year-olds and there will be all the way up to 12-year-olds. So I said to them, what if you guys are having a really fun time doing an activity and someone like says, oh, I don't, I don't really want to do that. That's kind of for babies. And, and I don't think no, none of the neighborhood kids would, but I kind of I wanted to phrase it in a way of like, what if someone didn't want to do something because they're older? And Emerson said, I, I kind of see what you're saying is that you don't really like to do those things. And I loved, I remembered her saying, I, I see what you're saying. And that's her way of saying like, that's empathy, that's perspective. That's her way of understanding where that person is coming from. And she was like, but you don't have to do this. And I was like, yeah, that's a great way to say it. Spencer was like, I would just walk away. And I was like, perfect. That's a great example. Like take some space, like, you don't have to respond. You don't have to change their opinion. And I, then I also said, you know what? When our friends come over, like we have friends that have younger siblings and we'll just say her name is Alana. When Alana's younger brother comes with her and he's two years old, do you like to do the same crafts and do the same things as, as her or as him? No, he's two and you're six. Well, you're six and they're 12. They don't want to do the exact same things, but there's probably a better way for them to say it, but this could happen. We also did a what if today, getting ready for the neighborhood Halloween party. And I said, okay, what if someone comes into the house and you're really excited to show them that you decorated their, your bedroom? 
do you A, say, um, Grace, come up to my bedroom. I really want to show you that I decorated it in spooky Halloween decorations. Or B, hey, does anyone want to come see my room that I decorated? And Emerson's like, well, B. And I said, yeah, well, why would you pick B? And she said, because then I won't make other people feel left out. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, you like hit the nail on the head. Like, that's what I want her to say. But just give them pre-teaching, like that there could be times when some kids feel left out if you only invite certain kids to do things. Here's ways to make sure we don't have it happen by pre-teaching them before the party starts things like that. That's just like a six-year-old thing that we do and we've done for a long time. I love that. And it starts so, so young. I think I, we started using it at like one, right? Like even before they yeah. can understand it with like just giving them two options or sometimes not even asking them to respond to something when they're so young, but pre-teaching about like what they can expect, what's going to come next. When I'm changing your diaper, I'm going to talk to you about what's coming next. And I think pre-teaching can be kind of molded in so many different ways, but it's such a huge tool. But in this neighborhood boo story, you tapped into one of my next questions that I want to fire at you, which was how to teach kids to be empathetic, but also stand up for themselves. How can we teach them to, yeah, I guess exactly that. Somebody reached out and was like, my tiny human doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So they're not standing up for themselves. How can, how do we balance that? That's a great question because this this can look differently at different ages. And I think it's important that you are kind and you're compassionate and you're empathetic, but within that, that you are also sticking up for yourselves and sticking up for others. I think so much of it goes back to the whole idea and the foundation of empathy is is being mindful and intentional with your parenting and using real life examples as teachable moments. So a lot of the times something like this, you may not be able to predict that it's going to happen. But when you see this happen in your child's life, like jump on it and use it as a teachable moment. And here's what I mean. Spencer, it was after the soccer game Saturday, Spencer was playing like they on the playground like they do after every game. And they love to do this. It's just fun, free play. They know they get to do it every Saturday with their, their teammates. Well, he was running through underneath like a slide and he bumped into a much older kid. Well, that much older kid turned around and yelled at him. Just hurt your heart. So Spencer, and I did not see this happen. A mom, I, my, I was talking with family that was there. I was right next to them. I was in the playground area, but I didn't see it. I don't watch every moment. But a mom on the soccer team did see it happen. And so Spencer came up to me and started crying. So I said, so when it happened, my first instinct is just to comfort him. I don't always say like, what happened? Are you hurt? Where does it hurt? I just comforted him. He just wanted me to hold him. And know he was safe. So we held for a second and he's crying, but the, the crying stopped. So I knew it wasn't, he wasn't really hurt. And I said, gosh, buddy, I'm so sorry. You're sad. What, what can I do to help what happened? And he didn't want to talk about it. And I was like, that's strange because he'll always like, it's usually like he bumped and, you know, I hit my head, which happens in sports a lot. Like he plays tough and he plays with his neighborhood kids out back. So 
a mom came over and explained to me what happened. And she said that the little, the boy, you know, like got bumped into. So when we were in the car and things had settled down, I kind of used that as a teachable moment. And I said, you know what, Spencer, I'm really sorry that this happened. I think that this boy doesn't have that feeling of empathy. He didn't feel sorry for you that you got hurt when he, you know, you bumped into him. That's sad that, you know, his parents or, you know, his family hasn't taught him to, because he obviously didn't think of your your feelings when he was yelling at you. How do you think this boy could have handled it differently? Going back to the whole, like I kind of left it open-ended and going back to the whole like idea of empathy and sticking up for yourself. I was like, yes, that boy could have stood up for himself. Like he could have not liked that you bumped into him. Like he could have, you know, been upset, but he could have handled it in a different way of like, Hey buddy, watch where you're going. And yes, this is a different version of sticking up for yourselves and what's right. But like, it is a different way. You don't need to yell at someone if you don't agree with them, but you can be fair to them and tell them like, Hey, you want, you bumped into me, watch out or just watch where you're going. Kind of something along those lines. Um, so it kind of ties into what you're saying about sticking up for yourself, but like use pretty much using teachable moments as far as having kids be compassionate and empathetic, but also standing up for yourself. It has, it's a great example from something that happened with our life over the summer. It was Spencer has a really good friend and they play a lot together and they just get along really, really well. Usually when Spencer's doing what that other friend wants to do. And after one of the play dates, Spencer said, man, we, we, you know, we played golf and we did um, this and we, you know, went out to the swing set, but like, I wanted to also play with the girls and play house. And he didn't want to do anything that I wanted to do. And I said, goodness, like, how did that make you feel? And he was like, well, I felt kind of frustrated. I was bummed out because I like to play with him, but I also wanted to play with the girls. And I said, you know what? You're right. Like I did see you playing all these things, but I said, you do like to play golf in in these sports and do those things. I said, but I know you also like to join in with the girls and do other things. What could you have done differently next time? Now at three years old and four years old, I probably wouldn't have opened it up and just given them, I probably would have, you know, led him and given him some options. But at this case, in this point, he can think on his own. And he said, well, you know, maybe next time I could say, Hey, I played what, what you wanted to play. Let's try this next. And I said, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. You know, you are thoughtful of his feelings and doing what he wants to do, but then also maybe give him some options of some things that you want to do, because that's what makes you happy. And and you have to be able to stick up for yourself and not just give in to what other people want to do. And I use an example of my friend in the neighborhood that I used to play with, um, just like this situation. And I said, I remember she used to love to climb trees and she would always love to go in my pond. Like when we would go and play, like those were the two things she would want to do is go in our pond and, you know, climb trees. And I said, after doing that for so many times, I said, I just didn't want to play with her anymore. And I said, but then I realized after a couple of weeks of not playing with her, I missed playing with her 
that wasn't a good solution. I should have just given her some options like let's go in the pool instead or, you know, let's play house on the swing set. There's other options. And I said, but I just gave up. And I said, I don't want to be friends anymore. And thinking back, I would have done that differently. So I, you know, gave him some space to think about what he could do differently. I gave him a scenario of where I felt like I needed to stand up for myself. And I didn't handle it in a way that I wish I would have. I did it in a different way and how I would do things differently now. Um, so I guess it's it's really... That's one example. I guess it's being mindful of what's happening in their life and using whatever example in that teachable moment to try to mold and shape that behavior for next time. If they stood up for themselves, but in a bossy way, try to teach them how to tone that down and you can still, you know, get your point across, but in a kind way. Or if you see them being walked all over, to have that conversation afterwards and say, I noticed how, you know, you just let the other, you know, your friend lead the way. And, and I'm sure that kind of made you feel frustrated. You didn't get your voice heard. Maybe next time you could say this, but I would think really using teachable moments and being involved and it's really recapping anything that comes up where you see it as a time to teach them is, is a, you know, an appropriate thing to do in order to shape it for the next time. Yeah, I love that. I also, I think oftentimes we're looking at like somebody who's maybe bullying or or being mean, right? Like this is like the, I think of those things as actions and then I want to teach these tiny humans, what are the feelings beneath those actions? That it's not okay to bully somebody or to be mean. What do you think that person was feeling? And so I and sometimes again, when they're younger, I would just say, Oh, I think that person was feeling mad and they don't know what to do. So they chose to be mean. And then following up with, and you don't have to play with that person if they're being mean to you, like giving, letting them know, like you don't have to continue to do that. But I want kids to start understanding that it's not about them, right? Like people are probably yeah. going to mean or rude for the rest of their lives. They're going to encounter people who are, who are doing this. And I w don't want them to be like, Oh, what did I do? How did I make that person mad? Or how did I, that sometimes it's that somebody else doesn't have those tools to, to kind of process it another way. And that literally just saying that they're like, Oh, they don't know what to do when they're feeling mad. And so they chose to be mean because they don't know how else to handle that. And I might then dive into also those conversations around like, what could you do next time so that they're prepared for how to exit that situation or respond in a different way if somebody is being mean to them. Absolutely. Like yeah. There's a, also, you could do social stories. Like if your child is a really a pushover, you could write a social story and, and give them some words and, and start by giving them phrases to use when they feel like they're being pushed around, you know, um, and give them some options within a, like a social story that just, it, it, it just helps them to kind of memorize what, that, what to say, because they might not be able to think of that on their own when they're feeling flustered. And so that social story is just a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, giving them those, that exact language. Yes. Giving them that language. And then over time they can start to figure it out on their own and, and use their own verbiage, but it gives them kind of like an out or, you know, when they're not, yeah, give them an out as far as when someone's pushing you around, this is your way. These are some words that you can use 
to kind of get out of the situation in a positive way and, and to t- try to turn it around. So you're not feeling like that anymore. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I think it's even okay to tell our tiny humans like Spencer in this scenario that if I'm going to call this other kid, Jack, if Jack doesn't want to play house and you do, and you've played all these games with Jack, it's okay to say, you know what, Jack, I've played, had so much fun playing with you and I really want to go play house with the girls for a little bit. If you want to come join, you're so welcome. I'm going to go do that for a little bit. That like, it's okay yeah. to do that thing for yourself, even if Jack doesn't want to. Yes. And I love it. That's exactly, you said it better than I did. Those words to, to give to him, ex- that, that's exactly what it is, is you're, you're being kind, you're being fair. You're not, that's not being mean. That's just thinking of your feelings as well. Yeah, I love it. And I think it's something that's so, so hard to do because I think a lot of times our kiddos who are so empathetic can find themselves in this space where they're trying to empathize with the kid on the other side and think of their feelings, but can, can put their own feelings on the back burner. So cool. Yeah. And, and I noticed an, an, inter- an interesting dynamic the other day was when Spencer was playing with this boy and the, he had picked the board game that he wanted to play and Spencer just kind of just gave in and, um, and then a third person came in and started to play with them, which is not normally the dynamic. It's just usually Spencer will call him Jack. And the third person came in and he had like no problem shutting Jack down. He was like, nope, can't play like that. Nope, I'm not playing. Like he quickly got out of the situation. You could just tell like this third boy that came in was like, gosh, I have no time for this. Like, I am not going to be patient. Like, I don't like the way that you're playing. I don't like the way that you're bossing me around. He just, you know, kind of left. And I just watched it unfold. They didn't have like a, a big issue or, or conflict. It was just like, um, I am not as patient with this. And he removed himself from the situation. So well, I don't I know if like- Jack will learn from that or not. And I think as they get older, I I just wrote a blog post uh, in October that was about leaders and the different kind of leaders that exist and the different kind of leaders that we could raise and kind of broke it down to really two categories, like leaders who lead through fear and control. And then down the road, that's like micromanaging and all that jazz. And on the other side, leaders who can highlight people's strengths and pull them together and bring everyone to the table to participate as their best selves. And I think there comes a time where we can talk to our tiny humans about this and saying that there are a couple different types of leaders that are out there. And sometimes you might find yourself around somebody who's leading like this and preparing them for what do you do? How do you respond? If you don't want to be playing a game with someone who's leading like that, how can you respond? And yeah, get your way out. It's so interesting because I talk a lot about um, my, like me being a teacher and me working in the schools with the kids. Like when we're doing learning time, I will, I will refer back to old students that I used to have. And I refer back to, you know, other teachers. And one of the things we talked about today was um, how there's different ages that are all coming to this party. And I said, when I was a teacher, I worked with I started teaching when I was 22 years old and I said, and one of my dearest friends was in her fifties. So I said, we were 30 years apart, but I was able to learn so much from her and I loved being around her. So the reason I brought it up today was because of the, the age difference and how we still were able to connect. But when you talk about leading 
in a school district, you have, you know, your principals and your superintendents, but there are also like teachers that kind of lead the staff and she was one of them. And I love her. She's just one of those people that you're drawn to. And I, I was like, when I met her from the first time, I was like, I just like being around her. And I feel like I wanted, I wanted to be like her. Her name is Mary Beth. And so Mary Beth was just this, like, when you think of the like kind, thoughtful, compassionate, like she was that she would pop into my room and ask me how I was doing and really listen. She led through kindness and she led through empathy and listening to other people. And she was just like a leader in our building. And I loved being around her. And when I had, you know, if I had an issue with something or I, I, she was able to resolve conflict and see different perspectives and talk me through it. It was just, she's just this person that can do it. And I learned so much from her. And I think as I, you know, as I was in the district a little bit longer, I, I realized that she really was a leader for our staff, even though she wasn't the principal, she was a teacher, just like all of us, just her ways that she did things, people were stepped up to the plate around her, did better. Like I wanted to be a better person when I was around her. And I, and I mentioned her to the kids too. And I just think that when you talk about, you know, leading through, you know, kindness and compassion, she was one of those people that did. And I just have a soft spot in my heart for her. And it's nice that you have heard like John, when you tell the tiny humans stories about different types of leaders and all that jazz for who you looked up to and that they will then in their social groups probably find people or they get to be those people um, or both. Yes. I, I tell the twins, I said, you know what? Um, I, one of the reasons I'm proud of you is because you act the same, whether I'm watching or not. And of course there could be moments when they don't. I, I, they, I, I know that they've had moments where they're not exactly the same as if I was right there. I, that has happened and we've talked about it, but for the most part, they really are kind and compassionate. Sometimes like my windows are open and I hear what's going on out, you know, out back in the yard or out front when they're riding bikes, I can kind of gauge what's happening. And I am, I am very proud of them most of the time that they act the same way. And I tell them, I think other kids rise to the occasion when they're around you. I think kids are more honest. I think kids compromise more when they're with you because that's how you act and you don't waver. And I said, so I'm proud of you that you are the way that you are, that you are thoughtful and you compromise when someone has a disagreement and you see where they're coming from. I said, I think other kids do that better when they're around you. Um, So nice. Good positive reinforcement. Oh my gosh, complimenting kids when they are showing empathy, when they when they've done something that you know you've been working on that they notice maybe you've noticed they haven't done in the past, but they've made a change for the better. I mean, complimenting them is a huge, huge, you know, plus for them in their book. They they thrive off of that. They want to make you proud. So I compliment them all the time. I compliment them every night when they when they go to bed and I talk to them about you know, why I love them and and why I'm proud of them and different things that they've done throughout the day or things that they've improved on. And, and just that it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, Oh, I'm a kind person. My mom loves it when I'm kind and I'm going to keep being kind because it makes me feel good. And I fill my bucket and I fill other people's buckets. 
and it's that whole idea of, you know, intrinsic motivation and wanting to, to be a good kid and, and, and continuing to, to be empathetic. Yeah. And I, I firmly believe that we behave the way that we feel. And so if mm-hmm. we feel like we are screwing things up all the time, if people tell us that we're annoying or rude or whatever, that's how we're going to behave. If people tell us and highlight all the kind things that we do and all the ways that we're caring human, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do for attention. That's how we're going to show up in the world. And it's, it's, it can be a hard switch to make because we're so, I think as humans, like trained to find the things that need to be fixed and highlight those and, and talk about those. Yep. But right. there, if we could make that shift of saying, my goal is four positive things to every one negative, if we can highlight those positive things throughout the day, and we're doing that more than we're highlighting the negative things, kids that want to get our attention with something or just in how they're going to show up in the world, it's going to be through positive acts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that completely. One of the questions that I got, and this was from someone who has a tiny human who's older, was mm-hmm. what to do when your kid has a higher emotional IQ, so higher emotional intelligence, than the kids that are around them. So if they are, and I, I thought of like the bullying or the mean or and and i think you can speak to this your tiny humans are have high emotional intelligence and the odds are they're going to be around people who don't have as high of emotional intelligence so how do we prepare our kids for responding to other humans who aren't at that level i i like that question and you know what i i'm going to respond with a question have you had interactions you know whether it be a coworker or a family member or i mean anyone that you come into contact with where you don't feel like they are able to see two sides of the story. Like they're not able to gain perspective. Like you as an adult, have you come into contact with other humans that don't maybe don't emphasize like being socially, emotionally aware as, as much as you do? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I'm pretty sure that's how my husband felt when he met me. Um, he <laughs> definitely helped raise my emotional intelligence. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like, for me personally, when I think of like my answer to that, yes, I have come across those folks. And sometimes I feel like I can respond in a way where I'm like, oh, well, we're close. Like I can, I can respond in a way that they will be receptive to mm-hmm. in terms of like meeting me here. And other times I, I would say my personal defense is usually to just go quiet and mm-hmm. I, I'm just like, this isn't worth my time and energy to try and engage with you when I don't think that you're going to be able to meet me here. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence 
Whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So I, I guess to, to answer that question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it in two parts. One, I'm going to talk about like the, the process of going through what happens if someone is not maybe as socially and emotionally aware. Um, and then I'll kind of give some examples of that. So if someone is not able to see, a, you know, your point of view, they might not be as empathetic or they might not be as emotionally intelligent. They might also just you know, like not be able to identify their emotions. They might be very hot headed and go off the deep end very quickly. So step one is to try to problem solve. Um, and by doing that, you do have to think about how that other person is feeling. When you're going to resolve an issue, you have to think of one, how I am feeling and two, how they're feeling and try to figure out a way to meet in the middle. Um, so one, you're going to try to problem solve. Step two would buy, try to be like, come up with a solution and a compromise and, and, and talk through the issue. Gosh, I, I see that you're feeling angry because you're shouting at me. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to problem solve and come up with some type of compromise. If that doesn't work, I'm going to try to rephrase it and, and attack it in a different way, but and problem solve, give it a, a, a second chance. If that second chance still doesn't work, then my big thing is to like, to take space is like as, as an adult, as kids, you're not going to reason with everybody it seems like maybe that problem can't be resolved right now because maybe that person is escalated and you have been able to remain calm. So really you're going to problem solve and I'm going to try to problem solve again two different times. And then after that, I'm going to take some space and, and figure out whether you just need to be separate and it's going to resolve itself. I mean, sometimes as kids really just time away they tend to forget a lot of issues even happened. As adults, we don't. Like, I mean, we need it resolved and we need to come back around at some point. But as like four-year-olds, six-year-olds, I don't know above that. But a lot of kids at this age will just just need a break from each other and some space. So once they've tried to problem solve and then, you know, rephrase it and, and come at it from a different angle, if that doesn't work, you need to just kind of remove yourself or take some space and um so here, are, I guess, are some examples when they have been in a place where another kid is not, I guess, as emotionally aware as them. Um, this happened the first day of Emerson's dance class. She, the girl loves to dance. The girl loves music. She was pumped. I mean, she was on cloud nine. 
And I kind of peeked in the window and I'm watching her and things seem to be going fine. And a lot of the moms I'm friends with, so like I get to chat, like I, I'm so happy. Emerson's happy. This is great. We get in the car and I was just like, opened it up. I mean, the car is a great place. I was like, what did you think? She goes, it really really wasn't my favorite. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what? Like what? Okay. Well, we already paid the deposit. We paid for the month. You're doing the month, right? Like, I mean, okay, (laughs) let's, let's see where we're going here. So I said, oh, I said, okay. Well, tell me, you know, what things did you like? What things didn't you like? You know, tell me about it. Why, why didn't, wasn't it your favorite? And she was able to say, she goes, I felt really distracted. There was this girl who kept asking questions to the teacher the whole time. And she wasn't doing the right steps. And she was like, I was just really distracted. I couldn't listen to the teacher. I couldn't watch. And she was like, and it just wasn't really fun. And I was like, gosh, I'm proud of you. Like, yeah, yeah, to not just be like, well, I don't like it. She was like, she figured out why she didn't like it. And that there was just one child that was distracting her. So I I just thought for a second, because I was not expecting this. And I was like, gosh, but how do you think that that girl felt? And Emerson's like, what, what do you mean? She, he said, well, this is a new place. I said, you went in knowing two other girls. I don't know if she knew anybody else. You've done dance before. I don't know if she's done dance before. How do you think it must have felt for her to be in a new space with a new teacher, maybe doing something she's never done? She was like, well, she was maybe confused. Maybe she was overwhelmed because there's a lot of people. That first day, there was a lot of people. They sorted it out and kind of spread out kids over the course of the week. But there was a lot. And I was like, so I can understand where you're feeling distracted, but I have a feeling that she was probably a little overwhelmed. So yes, this girl just maybe, so really, I kind of, I don't know if I put it back on Emerson, but I I really made her think about how the other girl was feeling first. So it wasn't just about her. And then we use the phrase in our family, you're one piece of the puzzle. And I think we could, you can use that at any age. I love it. And you can translate it across so many different situations. I'll talk more more about the one piece of the puzzle later, but I said, you're one piece of the puzzle in that dance class. And I said, then she's one piece of the puzzle. I said, but you know, you also have to be thinking of how she's feeling in this overwhelming situation. So first we did that. And then second, I said, so what can we do for next week? Because we're going to go back next week. What can you do maybe so it's not so distracting? And I opened it up. And she was like, um, well, um, I can like not look at her. And I said, yeah, yep, you're right. And, I, and then she was like, um, I can move spots. And I was like, yes, like that's what you need to do. You need to like move physical space and give yourself some distance so that you are facing the teacher or you're closer to the teacher. And I was really proud of her for coming up with that solution on her own. And I said, you know, you just have to be mindful of her feelings and, and think about what she's going through and then, and then go from there. You can also think about your feelings and try to find a solution. And after week two, she's loved it ever since. It's worked itself out. That's awesome. Um, Did she, when she went in the next week, just out of pure curiosity and knowing your daughter, 
Did she mm-hmm. like introduce herself to that human? She did not. And you know what, to be, if I, to be honest, if it's, I, as you're saying that, I'm like, gosh, I should have gone down that route and introduced herself. No, she did introduce herself to two other girls, but they were two other girls that kind of like are friends of friends that she had talked to before. So we did not bridge the gap between being no, that's friends so with fine. her. I was just curious because she is so... Yeah. When, when they were on the episode, I asked her, like, what if you went into a new dance class and you were there? And I think I may have said, like, and you, somebody was there who didn't know anybody, what would you do? And she was like, I would walk up and say, hi, I'm Emerson. What's your name? <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, perfectly Emerson. I was curious. But that is amazing. That's interesting. And no, and, and, and that, that makes me more mindful of like what I should have done. Because also, I think I would have said that other times. And I should, that, that's one of those times I should have, like, I'm not empathetic all the time. I'm not mindful, like a hundred percent of the time. So that's like a big eye opener for me. And I, that would have been better for her to do. She did do it with other girls and she has in the past, but just not with this one student for her. It was better, I guess, just to take some space just because of like behavior issues. I feel like it was like more of, it was a behavior thing and she didn't want to get in trouble. Like she, the other girl wasn't a very good listener and Emerson does tend to be, a rule follower and and uncomfortable when someone's not following the rules. So I think that was why she chose to like take some space. But I think I, I'm glad you said that because it, it probably would have been more helpful if I said something along those lines as well or offered that option up. I'm so impressed with Emerson's self-awareness there to be able to highlight like how, not just how she's feeling that like, I think, I think a lot of us can walk out of something and be like, man, I didn't like that. But to be able to identify, well, what didn't you like? What was it? What was, mm-hmm. what's the root emotion? And this is something um, we've been writing a lot in our book lately, and it's just been on my, on my mind. But I think of it as the heart emotion. Like, what's the root emotion from this? That maybe you're feeling annoyed yeah. or frustrated, but what are you really feeling? And it was distracted, right? Like, that's so, that's so amazing. I love that. Another example of like someone else that's not like as socially aware, or maybe like, I guess in this situation is just, it goes from zero to 60 a lot quicker. Um, The twins are around someone that is like this sometimes. And it's like, they'll be in the middle of a baseball game. And if something doesn't go his way, it's zero to 60. And it's like an immediate like pout or a cry. And after one of the games, Spencer said, I don't like it when you cry because it ruins it for the rest of us. Like, I don't like it when you pout and you leave the game because then we all have to stop playing. It kind of ruins it for everybody else. And Spencer was kind of brutally honest with it and just was like, man, like you keep doing this and it's not fun. Like, and Spencer was kind of talking through like, it's okay to strike out. It's okay to, you know, not get on base every time or hit a home run. And and Spencer's like, but it's not okay to, to cry and ruin the game for everybody else. We use a lot of this, like, it's okay to blank. It's not okay to blank. It's okay to feel frustrated when dinner is not what you like. It's not okay to make a rude comment that I'm, you know, I'm not going to eat this or, you know, and he said it, he said, it's okay to get out. It's not okay to pout and like ruin the game for everyone. And he he put it on, on him and was like, it's not fun. And I, that was one of those times, like Spencer, like threw it out there to him. And, and I was proud of him because he didn't do it in a mean way. But it happened enough times where Spencer was like, I just want to play baseball and it's not fun anymore when you're pouting. And so I was, 
I was proud of him. Like he was honest and he was fair and, and that's kind of how we laid it out there to the, to him. That's awesome. I love that. And, and it's a good leadership skill. I, you, you mentioned the like piece of the puzzle thing. And one yeah. of the things that I think is huge for empathy are mantras and it could be a family mantra. Sometimes it's like a classroom mantra. And this word mantra for some people might uh, be hard to relate to, like a phrase, just something that like can that you identify with and that kind of keeps you going. I keep something right on my desk that I get to look at every morning that uh, just kind of reminds me of who I want to be and how I want to show up in the world. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of families can incorporate this where it's just like, we're going to be a kind family or in yours, your mantras or your phrases have kind of evolved with the tiny humans Mm -hmm. as they've grown and you've added more, but they've always come back to this notion of of being kind humans. You did the kinder than necessary for a little while and, um, yeah. And you would bring it up. I, I would be at dinner and listening to Brian ask the kids, what did you do at preschool today that was kinder than necessary? Or what are you, what can you do that's kinder than necessary as we go to this thing? Like just bringing it up and almost like just beating it to death, right? That like, this is going to, you guys are going to know this phrase and you're going to know what it means and it's going to be present in your head and and in your heart, like as you show up. And I think that's something you guys are very, very good at. And it sounds like this piece of the puzzle thing is another one of those. And I want to hear about it. I love what you just said. Like, I love mantras. I love repetition. Like it's ingrained in them. If they hear it enough and they see it enough and they feel it enough. Like, yes, we, in the last podcast, we talked about being kinder than necessary. We talk about it, but we also do things and model things that are kinder than necessary. Our neighbor had throat surgery. The kids made cards. We brought her muffins that she could eat. Like she could only eat soft things. Like doing things that are kinder than necessary and then recapping and talking about that. A huge mantra that I think that people can use at all different ages and in all different situations are you are one piece of this puzzle. We are at an amusement park and there's four of us. I know you really want to go on Space Mountain and Emerson wants to do Splash Mountain and I want to do Move It, Shake It Parade. You are one piece of this puzzle. We will get to what you want to do. It may not be when you want to do it. We are um, picking a family board game and you are one piece of this puzzle. You have your vote, you have your say, and I'm going to hear you, you know, but you also have to understand that there's a mom and a dad and a sister involved in this. It just, it's taking them. And so they're not so egocentric that there is other pieces to the puzzle. Love the phrase, use it all the time. It translates so many different ways. We use it on the soccer field. Spencer, you scored three goals today and I love it. They were awesome goals, but you are one piece of the puzzle. You are one part of this team. We are already up, you know, 10, nothing. I want to see if you can try to get Ava to score instead. Think of her and how she's feeling. And she's another piece of our puzzle in our team. You can use it all different ways. And, and I love things that can translate to different ways, you know, that it's not just in one particular instance that they can translate it across the board to different things. Do you have to use it for (laughs) 
We, you know, you know, yes, maybe going to a fall festival. <laughs> I know you want to go golfing, but you are one piece of this puzzle. <laughs> you are one piece of this puzzle. Actually, I never, I, I never have to say it to my husband. I mean, I, well, I'm just kidding. He's I love, awesome. he is the most selfless. I mean, he, I tell him to go golf and I'm not even joking. Like, please do this for yourself. Like he is a worker. Last Sunday, he spent three hours at a rental house. Uh, you know, doing the inspection after working all week, like he's, he's got that down, down pat. Yeah, yeah. no, I just kid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I interrupted you. You were going to say another, no, no, no. another, another one that we use are two wrongs. Don't make a right, which is so mm-hmm. simple, but it's just for some reason, the kids actually have taken off with that one more so than I did. Like I said it once or twice, but we were sitting on the couch the other day and Emerson pulled like the blanket a little bit. They were snuggling on the couch reading a book. Emerson pulled the blanket and it went off of Spencer completely. And he like yanked it right back. And she said, two wrongs don't make a right. Mm-hmm. She was like, I didn't mean to yank it off of you, but you didn't have to yank it back. They talked through it. Like it was, you know, it was just something little, but she used the whole phrase of two wrongs don't make a right. Yes, I made a mistake pulling it off of you, but you could have said like, oops, you know, you took that blanket from me and I was using it or something. But she used that phrase and it's a simple one and it's easy to understand and it it can be translated in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I love that. Um, all right, Logs, we're going to come into like a rapid fire round. And from yeah. this rapid fire round, we have a freebie that is going to be available on our resources page and on this blog post that will highlight these things. We're going to go through concrete things that you can do at different ages and stages. We'll look at infancy, toddlerhood, and then the preschool years. And a lot of the preschool years can be adapted then just FYI for folks into like elementary school. But we're going to do a concrete like breakdown of things that you can do to build empathy. We're just trying to highlight about three things in each category for people to have takeaways. Okay. Um, I'm going to say it's never too early to start um, before they're one year, you know, before they turn one and they're taking things from people's hands. You need to identify that emotion and you need to take part in that type of play and say, you know, you made me sad. Look, they're sad. They're crying. So um, first off, it's never too early to start. Um, This is something at every single age just as parents, you need to be intentional. You need to be present. You need to be mindful, like put down your phone, um, you know, turn off the TV, know what's going on around you. And that way you can have mindful conversations. You can talk about how people are feeling. Um, and that can be at, you know, at, at any age, um, emotion coaching, you know, helping them label an emotion, tell them it's okay to feel that emotion teaching them that emotion is like a cloud and, you know, that you're not going to be sad the whole time. You're going to be able to um, get past that and what strategies to do when you're feeling that way. Do you need a hug? Do you need to take space? Do you need to talk about the problem? And then over time, as they get older, you can pull back that emotion coaching and they're going to be able to start to do that process a little bit more on their own. They'll label their, you know, emotions on their own. After emotion coaching, and this is something you can do literally starting in infancy, I think we often wait for kiddos to start emotion coaching them, but we can start it in infancy when they're crying and they want to be fed. You can validate that feeling and you can start to coach them 
And a huge tool that I used when I taught in my infant classroom are visuals for emotions, mm-hmm. whether it's a card they yeah. can pull or Todd Parr's feeling splash cards, or I even made like, it was not pretty or cute, but I literally took just a piece of cardboard with some Velcro and did like pictures of kids with different things that could help them feel calm. Like a picture of say Jane with her lovey that she could go grab or Jack could go grab his pacifier. Like any sort of coping mechanism that they could go grab before they could use the words, they could grab that picture. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that. Visual aids. I know we, we, we used emotion cards when they were babies. And then on the other side, there was a mirror. Mm. So then they could like show that face and they could make that face, which they loved. I saved them for, I don't know, grandkids or something, but I saved (laughs) them because they're like torn up. I guess I'll pass them along at some point, but I was like, they were, they were huge. We use uh, the Todd Parr emotions flashcards, the feelings flashcards. Mm -hmm. And um, we actually, in the new year, we'll have some seed and sow feelings flashcards that are, we'll have the one, one emotion on one side and the other emotion on the other side. So if you have sad on one side, you can show the kids sad and say, how can you help your body feel happy again and flip it over. And we're doing a set deck that is specifically for infant toddler. And then you can also buy the like preschool add on with more emotions, but with infant toddler, we're just going to start with some basic ones. Those are, that's amazing. Yes. Everyone needs to invest in them because it's, we use them for so long. They are literally like the corners are ripped and torn because we use them so often. So when I talk about building empathy in kids, the very foundation of it is being intentional as parents, being present, being mindful. And that's both parents. I guess really knowing that empathy matters to you as a family and being mindful of your conversations and interactions. It's kids are going to like do what they see their parents doing. If they see their parents getting along and having um, relationships and conflicts that are resolved in a calm way, they're going to do it. So I think just having both parents be involved and mindful all the time is so important. It's kind of like the whole healthy eating thing. Like if you eat a salad once a month, it doesn't make you a healthy eater. (laughs) If you're mindful of empathy once a month, you're not going to build like an empathetic family. It's just the way it works. It has to be like a muscle. It has to be practiced and taught and used all the time. So that's just the foundation of it. And um, And it's really never too early to start, you know, identify emotions for them and, and, and then just start giving them words before they have it. And then, and then go from there. Um, Pre-teaching, huge thing, pre-teach, you know, prepare them for situations that they're going to go into. Um, Talk maybe about a situation that has happened in the past that you don't want to recreate, you know, learn from failure. Last play date wasn't a great time when your friend came over because you had a meltdown over toys. Today, let's try to put those toys away and let's try it a different way and let them play with the toys that are out. Pre-teach them before they go into something and you can do that at any age. And then recap afterwards, after you've left a baseball game and you just lost your playoff game and the boy was pouting and throwing his helmet, you could say, did you see that boy pout after the game? Gosh, I know he was frustrated, but that's not an appropriate way to act. You know, use failure as a teaching tool. Like 
you can talk about things that are great, but also bring up some things maybe that aren't so great that you don't want them to, you know, to copy. So recapping after situations is really important. Something that we do in our family, I allow them talk time, which means give them space and give them all your time and give them all your attention. Emerson's talk time is at night at bedtime. She will just open up. She doesn't want you to leave her room. So one, it's she wants you to delay it. But really, this is just her time where she feels comfortable and open and honest and vulnerable. And she'll just talk and ask questions and want me to tell stories. And she actually does most of the talking. But I give her that space to be honest and you know, talk about a mistake that she made or, you know, something that happened when they were playing today that she didn't know what to do. Spencer's is a little different. He sometimes does it throughout the day or at dinner time or in the car. He's funny at bedtime. He just asks like factual questions. So it's not opening up really. He's adorable and hilarious. And, but she's just super, just open and honest at that time. So that's, and no matter how much time you have to give them, it's not about the number of hours you have in your day to give it to them, but it's what goes on in those hours or that hour. You know, if you had a really long day at work, knowing that your kid will always have your full attention at bedtime is meaningful. So give them some type of space or time where they can open up and talk. And, you know, I don't care if Brian's away at work, you know, overnight, I give them the same amount of time. I'm not rushing them because I have two kids. I, I, I talk to both of them at night and talk to them in and sing to them. But whether guests are over or not, I don't just say goodnight, kiss them and walk out the door. They will always have my attention and, and time to talk. Even when we are in Florida and sometimes when they share a room in Florida, one will you know do bedtime stories and songs in one bed and one will have the other, you know, my bed. And they have that space to talk one-on-one, that quiet time, no matter what. We do what-ifs a lot. And what-ifs at age two were different than what-ifs at age six. But, you know, today, before the um, Halloween party, I talked to them, you know, what if, you know, you want to sing karaoke um, to Monster Mash, but everyone else wants to decorate their cookies. What could you do? Well, you know. We, we bring up these scenarios and they talk about different options of things that they could do and it just gets them thinking. So what ifs are awesome and you can use them in all different ways. This is something that I talked about in the last podcast, but using books, we read books all day long. I mean, we start in our morning by cuddling and reading books. You don't have to use books that are just geared on the lesson of empathy to teach empathy. You can pretty much take a lot, almost any book and figure out a way to put yourself in that character's shoes. How is that character feeling? What would you do if you were that character? I mean, it's as simple as like, I don't know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You, oh my goodness, Baby Bear's porridge is all gone. How does that make him feel? It's any book out there talk about the characters, how they're feeling, what you could do. We use Junie B. Jones, what not to do all the time. I don't <laughs> love Junie B. Jones because, but it, it is a teachable moment and she's like selfish and she interrupts people. So we talk a lot about what we wouldn't do when we read Junie B. Jones. So books, get on the list um, that you posted. 
find books on kindness. Like you can literally type into Pinterest books on empathy. I hold them at the library. I, you know, I reserve them online. I go, there's 10 books at my fingertips and here it is there, you know, there's a whole lesson right there in the story. And my kids thrive off of it. We, and we reread them by the way, like a a lot of them I own because I want them constantly being reminded of these ideas. Um, What's wrong with Timmy is a wonderful book about a boy with a disability. It, literally was like a game changer. They saw kids in a different way. They don't jump to conclusions if someone has a behavior issue. You know, they think, oh, well, maybe they learn differently. And they learned that through books and our conversations. Enemy Pie, A Chair for My Mother, Last Stop on Market Street, Those Shoes, We're All Wonders. These are just books that are phenomenal teaching tools and use them and read to them. It's so simple. It's so simple and it's so easy. We also, Seed and So has a Pinterest page and we have a board that's all about books for emotional intelligence. You can hit that up too. Love it. Use that. It's fantastic. Yes. We worked on that together about, you know, Mm -hmm. ones that were super meaningful. Um, Use life as teachable moments. You know, we were watching The Voice. We love to just have a family show, not every night, but some nights we watched and there was a contestant who um, had his whole house destroyed by a hurricane. And we talked about it. Like Emerson and Spencer both had tears in their eyes watching this video. Mm. And I was like, gosh, can you imagine how this guy must have felt coming home and not having a home? And then we watched America's Got Talent and there was um, a dance group from the Philippines and they showed their house and how it leaked when it rained. And you could just see their hearts turning and Emerson and Spencer felt for this dance, this, this group of dancers, just little things, build it into your day, whatever you're doing, you know, talk about people's feelings and putting themselves in their shoes. And, and, and it's, it's, it's infectious. Kids pick up on that and they start to do it on their own. And when teachable moments come along at age one, when someone else takes a toy, use it as a teachable moment at age two, when they don't get that sucker in the checkout lane and they're throwing a tantrum. Use that as a teachable moment. Next time they start to throw a tantrum, you can say like, we don't want it to be like we, like Wegman's last time. Like, let's turn this around and let's use our words. Like at age six, you know, with Spencer at the playground, when someone bullies him and yelled at him for bumping into him, we use that as a teachable moment. I said, what could he have done instead of yelling at you? You know, he could have said, Oh, watch where you're going use those moments in life to talk about it and be and, and be able to use those and, and change the way that we think and to be more empathetic. So those are just some takeaways and things that you can do, um, you know, to build empathy in kids. I absolutely love them. And I love that you highlighted that it has to start with us, that when we are leading with empathy, they will follow. And it's the little things. It's when you get cut off in traffic and now you're mad at this human, being able to rephrase that and say, oh, I hope that that person's okay. They really seem like they're in a rush, right? Just like the little reframing throughout the day goes a long way. Just little things. And then talking about it and going one step further, like we made muffins and we brought one up to daddy and I said, write a note on the paper towel that you brought it up to. Like it'll make his day. 
things like that, you know, and then say, you just filled his bucket. You know, you thought about how he's working and we're down here playing. And that's so sweet of you to do that. It's just little things that really are the big things. And so much emphasis, like, I mean, if you look on it and you try to like find like a developmental checklist and what kids should be doing academically, there's thousands of them out there. But really, if I, I would like toss those aside and not to say like, that's not important. We absolutely focus on academics and do our learning time. But to be honest, when you have the ability to understand your own emotions, like labeling them, processing them, having the tools to move past it. When you have the ability to relate to others, you know, think about how they're feeling and then respond accordingly. When you have those tools as a foundation, those academics will come more, like they'll just come easily. You know, if you're frustrated with with building blocks, you won't give up and throw the block. You're going to realize that it's happened before. I can feel frustrated, but I'm going to know that that feeling won't last and I'm going to give it another try. If I'm overwhelmed by something that I don't grasp and you're, you've overcome difficult concepts before, you can say, I don't understand. I need help. You know, being able to process all of those feelings and emotions and being able to, to respond to other people in those academics will come when you have created this space where they feel emotionally secure. It just helps them in the long term and when it's time to learn. It's so, so true. I was just at a conference and someone noted that the uh, the most recent group of Harvard students had the highest test scores uh, that they've had so far. So like this bar keeps raising in the highest rate of depression and like oh diagnosed gosh. depression. And the, the conference I was at was talking about how we absolutely should still be focused on um, academic skills as well, but we cannot leave emotional intelligence off the table anymore. That you can oh have my gosh, yeah. skills in the world, but if you're living a life with depression, there's only so far we're going to go here. And we, these tiny humans got one life here. And so let's, yeah. let's raise them with these, with this skill set and with these tools to thrive and not just survive. It makes their life so much easier and it makes them feel comfortable in so many new situations. It's just so helpful. Like there was a study that where they followed kindergartners up till they were 25 and there was just a huge correlation between like the social and emotional intelligence and becoming successful. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just, academically and professionally more sound when they when those kindergartners had those social emotional skills so you know yes of course like I said we focus on academics but if I was to spend time on anything especially starting at a young age it's this idea of empathy and building empathetic kids and that social emotional intelligence I love it well thank you for raising two emotionally intelligent humans that I just freaking adore and thank you <laughs> well they adore you well, I can't wait to chill with them we uh, are so lucky to to have you give us your time again and thank those tiny humans for sharing you with us I will thank you so much for having me on I enjoy this makes me think of this more and in a different way and it opens my eyes and you know, I'm not 100% empathetic and, and mindful all the time. So it's good for me to, to reflect and figure out where else I can grow because I'm always looking to do that as well. Well, thanks, Logs. I love you. Love you. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us 